Okay, um, today's reading is from Luke chapter 24, verse 13 to 35. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing it together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, why is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. And one of them named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty he indeed, and word before God, and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucify him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they have even seen a vision of angels who say that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and find him just as the woman had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning him himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our husband within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed, and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road, and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. So, um, reading this later is my first day of freedom after catching COVID, so I may sound a little scratchy. Apologies for that. If you get too bad, just pretend you're listening to me on short wave. Or... <laughs> um, so from the previous reading, uh, from the reading this morning, you probably figured out that we'll be talking about the resurrection today. I want us to do that by thinking about the reactions of those who were present and of right at the moment, and then also by looking at how the Apostle Paul assessed the importance of the resurrection. With this in mind, I would like to turn to our second reading this morning, which is 1 Corinthians 15, and we'll be reading from verse 1. So 
God be thanking you for your truth and for revealing yourself in your Son and in your Word and for guiding us through your Spirit. As we now prepare, Lord, to think on your Word and its implications for us and our lives, we pray that you will minister in us, that we will understand, and that we will not only understand, but go and apply what we hear in your Word. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Corinthians 15 from verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believe in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in a that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and to all the apostles. And last of all, uh, to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I'm the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then was I, or they, so we preach, and so you believe. May God bless us as we now think on the truths of his word. At this time of the year, a particular phrase should be very close to the hearts and minds of us as believers. Two weeks ago, on Easter Sunday, you almost certainly heard or even said the phrase, Christ is risen, is risen indeed. In fact, in some parts of the world, these words are used as a formal greeting on Easter Sunday. Beyond this, these words are obviously also a key confession of the Christian church as we look back to the Lord's victory of death 2,000 years ago. However, it's often be the case that a phrase, even an important phrase like this, can be used so often that we almost become used to it, that its full impact escapes us. I would like you to imagine with me for a moment what it must have felt like to say these words, the words, Christ is risen for the first time. Not as something we routinely say Sunday, perhaps, but as a description of something that is happening right in front of you, something that you're experiencing right in the moment. The story that, that the Rose read gave us a description of two of the earliest followers of Jesus who had exactly this opportunity. Luke tells us of how Jesus joins two utterly dejected men on their journey to a town called Emmaus. How the stuffing has knocked out of them, as it were, through the disappointment of thinking that it's all over, that Christ is dead. How Jesus speaks with them, explaining his coming into the world, and how, at the breaking of the bread, the penny finally dropped. This moment of realisation is powerfully depicted in what is perhaps my most favourite painting, called Supper at Emmaus, uh, by Caravaggio, and hangs in 
Caravaggio attempts to depict this very moment of realization as Christ breaks the bread. On the right-hand side, you see a man with this kind of expression, you know, utterly amazed, and you see his napkin dropping to the floor. On the left-hand side of the picture, another man is gripping his chair. You can see his chair is going to fall to the ground in seconds, in the act of jumping up in shock, and obviously also in joy. It's an image of people who are utterly, utterly astonished. And why would they not be? They have just witnessed the greatest miracle ever. And so they go to Jerusalem and they're able to say these words. The Lord has risen indeed. And he has appeared to Simon. Can you imagine the joy and the conviction with which these words must have been spoken by these men as they told their fellow believers the wonderful news? In it, we can hear the joyful acclamation that the cold, dark despair that they must have felt on the road to Emmaus has dissipated, that it's been replaced by hope and joy in the fullest sense of the word. It must have been spoken with trembling lips as the enormity of the words sinks in. Jesus, the one who died so horribly on the cross, who was buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, is not there anymore. He's alive. He just spoke to us. And because he's alive, the future is secure. Death has been defeated. The victory of the Lord Jesus secures a new future. A new future for all who trust in him. And again, just imagine all the astonishment and the joy of being able to say these words. He has risen. Yet, sadly, people move on even from great moments like these. Even something as glorious as the resurrection can somehow become commonplace. And words like he has risen <laughs> rather ordinary. There are, of course, many people in our society who dismiss the resurrection as a wish, uh, sorry, as a myth, or as some kind of Christian wishful thinking. There are, however, sadly, also undervalue the truth of the resurrection. Oh, they know what it is, and will most probably be able to articulate some key convictions about the resurrection. However, we can so easily relegate the truth of the resurrection to a position of interesting, but perhaps not all that important in my Christian life. This is done through living the Christian life in a way that does not make the resurrection an essential
recounts some of the events, but he also underlines their absolute and ultimate importance in the lives of Christian leaders. Of course, this discussion by the Apostle Paul takes place in a very specific context. Paul had been using much of the letter up to this point to sort out interpersonal and doctrinal issues in the Corinthian church. He did this with great passion and conviction. conviction. He was, however, convinced that they needed more than having their questions answered and their problems sorted out. And this is crucial. The Corinthian church also had to be reminded of what was ultimately important. And so this passage follows directly after chapter 14, obviously. But <laughs> the importance of this fact is that in chapter 14, Paul ended the discussion on the spiritual gifts something that caused great conflict in the Corinthian church. So right after that, we can see this passage almost as a kind of corrective to the squabbling and the wavering <coughs> ideas that plagued the Corinthian church. Being reminded of the resurrection and its truth and power can make things that divide us, can make things that make us squabble, can make things that take away our focus, shade into so let's just trace Paul's arguments here as he speaks about the importance of the resurrection and try and also draw some applications for our own lives as believers in the 21st century. The first thing that Paul says about the resurrection, and it is something obviously that the brothers and the sufferer of Emmaus instinctively realize, <coughs> is that the resurrection is good news. The fact of the cross and the empty grave transforms everything, brings hope and is truth <coughs> when we need it. Listen to these words. Now I want to remind you again that verse 1, brothers, of the gospel I preach to you, which you receive and in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believe in vain. It is clear that the Corinthians needed reminding, as we so often do, of the gospel. The word, as you know, means good news. So Paul, straight up the back, says to the Corinthians, this is good news, and I want to proclaim it to you again. Why can we <coughs> call this good news? Because it is a message of salvation. Verse 2, by which you are being saved. Just as the stone was rolled away into Sunday. So the message of the gospel tells us that the grave will not hold those who hold to the message of new life. The gospel liberates. We cannot receive any better news. Rebels, renegades, people who have wandered away can come back and receive liberation, restoration, a new life. As Paul will say later in this chapter, even death has lost Good news indeed. Gospel indeed. 
Second Paul reminds the Corinthians that this good news, the good news of the cross and the empty grave, that this is absolutely central to our faith. It is clear from reading First Corinthians that the Corinthian church was probably not <coughs> in line to win any church of the year award. It was racked with vicious infighting, personality clashes, and massive conflict about things that may regard it as not absolutely essential to the faith. Paul wants to bring them back from this by reminding them of what is ultimately and truly important. The fact that Jesus Christ died on the cross <coughs> and was raised again. Verse 3. For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for us in according, in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, Christ. He 
was revealed to them in all its glories. They had good news to go and share. Paul writes here to people who, in many cases, were not as fortunate, who may perhaps not have been uh, eyewitnesses in the same way. And so the question immediately arises, can we really trust that these events happened as they were described? Was the grave really, <coughs> really empty? Paul obviously was very aware of the question and he responds in a marvellous way. He does so by calling a gallery, one might even say, of witnesses. Listen to verses 5 onwards. He appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also, as the one abnormally born. The implication of what Paul is saying here is clear. He's not merely talking about some kind of spiritual resurrection that cannot be verified in any way. He's preaching a truly and bodily resurrected Jesus Christ. How can he do so? Well, in this instance, he points to those who saw the Lord Jesus alive after the resurrection, and he counts himself as part of their number. Note specifically this statement about the 500 and the way in which he ends it, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. The implication is clear. If you don't believe me, Go and ask them. There are many others witnesses. Paul is therefore very confident in proclaiming the resurrection <coughs> as an historical event that could be verified by the calling of witnesses. As he said to King Agrippa in the, uh, later on in the book of Acts, uh, the king is familiar with these things, and I can speak freely to him. I'm convinced that none of them has escaped his notice because it was not done. Should in line with this be ready to proclaim this most important of events as an historical fact, pointing out that those who were closest to the resurrection were utterly convinced that Jesus was indeed raised from the dead, to the point where they were willing to sacrifice their lives for this belief. It is a message that we can be certain about and that we should proclaim as such. J.I. Packer marvelously distinguishes optimism and certainty. Specifically here in the context of the resurrection. He writes, optimism is a wish without a warrant. Christian hope is a certainty guaranteed by God himself. Optimism reflects ignorance as to whether good things will ever actually come. Christian hope expresses knowledge that every day of his life and every moment beyond it, the believer can say with truth on the basis of God's own goodness, the best is yet to come. And this, of course, is guaranteed by the truth of the resurrection. So what would Paul have said to people who maybe mentally or even spiritually have moved on from the resurrection and moved on from that moment of joyful astonishment? Well, I think the answer is very, very here in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul would call them to turn back, to reassess, to understand the news, to be astonished and 
remind ourselves again of these great truths. Thirdly, there's been indeed good news, wonderfully good news, to share with the world. And he's desperate for good news. We need to immerse ourselves in it. We need to proclaim it and live it out in all that we do. Secondly, we need to place this message right in the center of our faith and of our conviction. It must crowd out any secondary concerns, anything that we may perhaps regard as a little bit more important or more pressing. This is of first importance. This must be reflected in the way in which we live our lives and in which we do church. And then thirdly, this is a message to be held on to with confidence. It is not simply some kind of vain hope. Christ is truly risen. Death has been defeated. This is not just some metaphor. It is the basis of our faith and, and the message that we have to this world. In Caravaggio's paintings that I mentioned at the beginning, we see someone about to jump from his chair in astonishment. Let us remember that the message, he is risen, is still as astounding, and as astoundingly good as it was on that day. Let us celebrate it. Let us proclaim it. And let us thank God for it. Let's do that now, shall we? Lord God, we thank you for the truth and the power of your word. We thank you that the word, he is risen, is just as true today as it was there on the road to Emmaus. We thank you, Lord, for the reminder that the cross and the Emmaus sits right at the heart of the good news that we have come to believe that we have to share with this world. We pray, Lord, that you will enable us to keep this central in our understanding and our living out of our faith, that we will proclaim this to a world that needs to hear the truth and the power of the message of hope, of truth, and of reconciliation. And we pray, Lord, that you will enable us to hold on to this, the greatness of God's word. We pray these things.